0: Father, we love to sing songs of the great work that you've accomplished in the Son of the Lord Jesus. Our Lord, we love to sing of you who took on flesh to, to be our substitute in every way, to be our substitute in obedience to the Lord, perfect obedience, to be our substitute as our sin bearer, to be our Lord, to be our hope, to be our life, which you guaranteed when you raised from the dead ascended to the right hand of the Father and sent your Spirit. And we again are the fruit of that great work. And that's the reason that we sing, it's the reason that we gather. It is the hope that motivates us to carry on in faithfulness. And it is that hope that we remember, not only when we gather, but particularly in remembering this promise in the Lord's table, as we call it symbol that you ordained for us to remember our unity with you, the cost of our redemption, and the hope of our future. And so prepare our hearts now as we open your word, be our teacher, Holy Spirit. We commit our time to you, and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5, as we come here to the end, and we have, this is I think the Third, we have three more counting this, and then we'll wrap it up in a, a couple of weeks as we spent some wonderful time in this great epistle. Before we begin, I mentioned uh, last week, it's kind of funny. Uh, well, I mentioned that uh, an old church writer by the name of Cyprian, who was from the third century, and we, we looked at some things that he said about the devil and particularly related to First Timothy 5, or 1 Peter 5. Uh, there is some copies of that work that I mentioned. He wrote several. This is number 10. Uh, I copied it and put it on the back. Now, I, I told that to our girls around the dinner table one day that, hey, you can read that. I copied it. And they said, Dad, we appreciate you. You know that we're not going to read that, but we're so thankful that you told us about it, uh, even though you know we're never going to read it. Uh, I hope that's not true. Never. But anyway, if any of you want to read this, uh, it's in the back uh, on the table. We'll open up to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we, again, are coming back into this section where Peter is giving some final exhortations, some final instructions, beginning with the elders, the shepherds of the people, but to the church, to the suffering church, to those who are scattered because of persecution for their faith in Christ. And these are his ending encouragements uh, to them. And in these ending encouragements, as we noted last week, he is addressing the adversary that we face and how to confront this adversary, namely the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion. And last week when we looked at verse 8, we noted our response to be aware that we are in spiritual battle, that there is an enemy of our souls that wants to destroy not only us, but the testimony of Christ in us, his people who bear his name, who are called Christians. And we noted that not only do we have a powerful enemy, not only do we have an enemy who is vigilant himself, so we must be vigilant in our response to him. And he is an enemy of the utmost despicable character. He is described here as a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. And though we gave some instructions in verse 8 about our need to be aware of this enemy and how we are not to be sleepful but awake and to be alert how we are not to be carried away by the times of the age, but rather to be sober-minded, he now tells us how we are to stand against him. Just with this idea of resistance, let me tell you a brief story that I borrowed. Uh, In southern France, overlooking the Mediterranean, stand the Tower of Constance. There in the 18th century, Huguenot women, Huguenot women were essentially French Calvinists, those who were in the stream of that, Calvinist of part of the Reformation that was a Huguenot. These Huguenot women were imprisoned for decades because they refused to surrender their reformed faith. In the tower room where they were held captive, a stone coping, that's a, a sloping top of a brick wall, a, slow, a, a stone coping surrounds a round opening in the floor. Inscribed in the stone is the word "resistes." Mary Durand entered that room in 1729 when she was 15 years old. So a 15-year-old girl was put into this prison. She clearly identified with the Reformed faith and all that that implied. And when she failed to conform that which was not to the glory of Christ and the worship of him, she was put into this prison. Three years later, her brother Pierre was hanged at Montpellier. In 1745, she was offered her freedom if she would agree to renounce Protestant worship. She refused all such offers and remained captive for 38 years, resisting the temptations to despair, to suicide, and to betrayal. From her imprisonment, she began a ministry of encouragement by correspondence. And some of her letters are kept today in the Museum of the Wilderness in the Mountain of the Seven Here was a girl of 15 years old put into prison because she failed to compromise on the glory of Christ and the truth about Christ. And the one battle cry of her heart, the one steely determination of her inner person in her commitment to Christ was that she would resist every temptation to cave in to those who put pressure on her, that she would resist every temptation to self-destruct herself and she in fact not only would resist those in what she wouldn't do but she would use this as an opportunity to minister to the body of Christ at large and for over 30 years she remained in that condition over 30 years again entering in at just 15 years old there's stories like this through the history of the church that could be repeated over and over and over again What makes this one worthy of our time this morning is that she had a settled resolve in her heart to resist those who would want her to fall. It's a testimony of firm faith, of settled resistance against the persecution fueled by the devil. It's an example of her sense of belonging to a community. She did not see herself, though isolated in this prison, as isolated from the rest of the body of Christ. But rather, even in her own suffering, she took upon herself the responsibility to minister to that body, to those who also belong to the Lord whom she served. It's an example of mission in encouraging others as well. And that's really at the heart of our passage this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me read this section to us, and then we'll swing back around to verse 9. Beginning in verse 8, we'll read 1 Peter 5, verse 8 to 11. Be sober of spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. As I mentioned before, last week we looked at the character of our adversary. And this weekend we went to see Paul's admonition to stand firm against the devil in unity with your brethren, to stand firm in the faith in unity with your brethren. In verse 9, he says, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And this is really a very encouraging reminder right at the At the outset, because he's writing to these beleaguered Christians that you are not alone. You're not isolated. You're not bearing this brunt of the enemy and this fight against the devil by yourselves. You are not without the divine resources to fight your enemy. And you are not without those who are with you in the struggle. And that is extremely encouraging. But again... Part of our soberness, part of our alertness, part of our awareness of this spiritual battle is that we are not passive in the fight. We are not passive in our resistance. We are not passive in our standing firm. And indeed, all of those things carry the idea of activity, of diligence, of purpose, of intent. And so Peter gives here then a command to us and an encouragement, really a motivation in our fight against the malicious purposes of the evil one and the first is this it's a command to spiritual stability a command to spiritual stability he says but resist him or you could say whom resist or whom we are to resist and that's really a strong word it has the idea to To oppose someone or to oppose something. To actively stand against it. To actively fight against it. It's used in Acts 13, this idea of Ilamis, the magician who was opposing Paul's ministry of the gospel. And it says that he was actively seeking to turn the heart of the proconsul against Paul and his ministry. He was actively resisting him. He was actively and intentionally trying to confuse the message that Paul was bringing. In Galatians 2.11, in a different context, here it is the idea of resistance when, when uh, Peter was at Antioch and he was influenced by some Jews who had come down who were teaching contrary to grace. They were teaching the need to be circumcised. Some of the Jews were and Peter was intimidated by their presence and so Peter when he, or Paul when he came and understanding that Cephas was starting to compromise on the gospel and was starting not to have a testimony of clarity of grace of God's grace in Christ he says this I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned that word opposed there is our same word of resist he stood against him He saw the danger of his actions and he rose up and he resisted it and he confronted it even here of the great apostle Peter. And so it is here that Peter calls us who knows what it is to be resisted when error has crept into the life of the church or even into his own heart and commands these suffering Christians to resist the devil who wants to destroy the faith of Christians. And, of course, this is not an isolated command. James, we mentioned it last week, in 4-7, says, Submit to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We'll look at this a bit later, but Paul gives the same instructions in Ephesians chapter 6, saying that our spiritual battle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, and it is with the spiritual forces of wickedness, and we are to resist him firm in the faith. And the point is, again, really just as an overall, is Paul's, or Peter is, trying, is reminding us that we have an enemy that is pure evil. As God is pure holiness, he is pure evil. He is, and again, this is a reminder, he is powerful, but he is not omnipotent. He is extremely intelligent, but he is not omniscient. He is swift, and he rules over a spiritual kingdom of fallen angels and demons, but he is not omnipresent. Those are attributes that belong to God alone. Are attributes of deity and he rules over a kingdom of unregenerate men and women but it is a kingdom that is limited and it is a kingdom that is temporary and it is a kingdom where ultimately defeat has already been accomplished but we don't know that yet do we it's a defeat that has been accomplished at the cross it is a defeat that paul promises yet future as he said to Romans that he will soon be crushed the devil will soon be crushed under your feet but he's not there yet is he The fullness of our salvation is the content of our hope It's not something we realize yet it's what we wait for and part of that fullness of salvation Is not only the freedom from the sin within us. It is the freedom of the tax outside of us It is the freedom ultimately of our greatest enemy who here seeks to cause such chaos, damage, pain, and dishonor to God. So God commands us in other places to flee temptation, but here he tells us to resist him. Not to flee the devil, but to resist him. Not to flee from his attacks, not to run cowering in fear, not to go AWOL in our battles for Christ, but rather to resist him, to confront him. Confront him with resolve, to confront him with purpose, to confront his intentions to destroy us with resolve to stand firm. Now, just notice, of course, here, and many, some of you, several of you came out of a charismatic background, so you'll resonate with this. He does not tell us to rebuke Satan, he does not tell us to give some kind of incantation, he does not tell us some formula for exorcism. He tells us rather to resist him and to resist his purposes against the people of God. Jesus, of course, spoke with that kind of authority. Jesus gave at a limited time a delegated authority when he sent out the 70 and when he sent out his disciples and even to uh, Paul after his ascension and ascending of the Spirit and others. To have that kind of unlimited occasions, that ability to speak with such authority... And the demonic realm knew that there were some who had that kind of ability. There's a funny account in Acts chapter 19 when the gospel went there. You don't have to turn there. I just want to mention it to you. And there was someone who was uh, going around, and it says in verse 11, uh, performing extraordinary, uh, or God was performing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. And as he was going around with this ministry, there were also, it says in verse 13, some Jewish exorcists who went from place to place. And attempted, to name, and attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus. Does it sound familiar? I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Come out. And so they were trying to do this. And this is what they were said. They were saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And then seven sons, one of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It's kind of embarrassing. The point being just this. They had no spiritual authority in their case because they weren't, of course, regenerate and they weren't redeemed. But there is no... There is no spiritual authority that's given universally to the church or to Christians to have that kind of resistance to Satan. That's not what he's talking about here. It's not what he's talking about here. What does he mean to resist Satan? How are we to resist him? Well, let me just preface that with this. Satan tried to destroy Jesus himself. Satan was a, a roaring lion prowling around trying to destroy the ministry of the Son of God. That's the account that we have in the temptation of Jesus. And how did Jesus resist him? He resisted him by standing on the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. He resisted him in his perfect submission to the will of God. He resisted him in his perfect trust in the purposes of God waiting to receive from God's hand and God's way what was promised to him, namely to be king and ruler over all that has been made, he himself made. Satan was surely behind the struggle of Jesus in the garden. He's not mentioned there, but as Jesus anticipated what he was to endure in his obedience to the Father, not my will, but your will be done, Jesus resisted in his perfect submission. Indeed, at every point where Satan tried to discourage and to derail the purpose of God in Christ, Jesus resisted him through his submission to the Father, through his trust in his plan. And as Peter has already made clear in his own epistle, is that Christ stands to us not only as our Savior, but also as our example in everything. He stands as our example. So, how did Jesus win against the schemes of the devil? Well, we already mentioned it. He trusted in the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. He trusted completely in what had been written and what had been revealed and what God's instructions were to him as the Messiah. He resisted by a perfect submission to the will of the Father. And he resisted by having purity of heart and life. And this is how we are to resist. This is how we are to resist. James 4, 7, we already read it. Submit to God. Submit to God. Follow your Savior, submit to him in everything, submit to his will, to submit to him in obedience, submit to him in every part of your life, and the devil will flee from you. We are to submit to him in holiness. Peter's already said, be holy as I am holy is the command that God gives to his church. Do not give him anything in your heart to work with. We'll mention this again, but the only power that Satan has over a Christian to destruction is the principle of sin that remains in the Christian. That's the only power that he has. He cannot make us sin. He cannot make us destroy our testimony of faith in Christ. Thirdly, Paul tells us all Scripture is inspired by God, so the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. How are we to resist him? We are to resist him by submitting to the will of God, by trusting him. We are to resist him by standing on the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. We are to resist him by walking in the truth. Now, Peter captures that in this next statement. He says, then, you resist him firm in the faith. Resist him firm in the faith. It has the idea of being steadfast, certain, immovable, solid. Interestingly, he uses this word. It's not used a lot of times in the New Testament. But that's how he translates it. It has the idea of solid as opposed to liquid. You might think, well, what in the world does that have to do with our passage here? Well, the writer of Hebrews uses it in chapter 5. Don't turn there. I'm just going to mention it to you. In verses 12 and 14, twice the writer says that these people whom he's writing to were in need of milk rather than solid food. That they were in need of milk rather than of solid food. And they were in need of milk because their senses were not trained by obedience to the truth. And so he had to go back and he had to teach them basic doctrines rather than their... He should have been able to teach them more mature doctrines. They themselves should have been teachers. But instead, because of spiritual immaturity or a lack of spiritual reality, both existed among them, he had to teach them basic truths. He said, but solid food... Mature teaching of the faith, the deeper and the more profound truths that are used by God to conform us to Christ's image, you are not ready for because of immaturity. So even there, where the the imagery is of a solid as opposed to a liquid, has to do with one's faith and obedience to Christ. He uses it, again, in the sense of certainty and stability and strength, unmovableness in 2 Timothy 2.19. He says, the firm, that's our word, foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. In other words, it's settled. It's unchangeable. It's grounded in the purposes of God, those who are his and those who will remain his to the end. Perseverance. We'll look at that next week. So here then, the firm, steadfast, immovable, certain certainty of the believers against the work of the devil is being firm, steadfast in the faith. What is the faith? He's not talking about the vague sense of personal faith here. He's not talking about faith in terms of what we have primarily. In other words, he's not... Talking about the strength of our trust. He's not talking about the strength of our own commitment here in the faith. That idea is inherent in standing firm. It is, trust is inherent there. But here in the faith, he is referring to what? He's referring to the body of truth that has been believed. That you stand firm in the faith. Now, again, Peter's talked a lot in his epistle about the trust that we are to have in Christ. He talked just a few places. In verse 5 of chapter 1, he said you're protected by the power of God through faith. That is your faith. That is your trust. That is your exercise of obedient trust in the Lord. That's your faith. It's what you exercise. He says in verse 7, so that the proof of your faith. Being more precious than gold, which is imperishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Christ. He says it in verse 9. I won't go through all of these. He says, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your soul. So, So that is a part of what he's saying in his epistle, that you have to believe, you have to exercise faith. But here he's speaking of, he's emphasizing something different. He's saying, being firm in the faith, the faith. Some of you may have the word you're in italics supplied, but here he's saying in the faith. In other words, this is the body of truth that is to be believed. It is the body of truth that forms the foundation of your hope. It's the whole theology of hope that." You've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to attain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. That's reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith. This is the salvation that will be revealed at the end. This is the salvation that God has promised. And this is the body of truth that you stand on. It is the faith. It is what you know to be true about Christ. It is what you know to be true about the world. It is what you know to be true about your own salvation. It is the gospel itself. It is the gospel itself. In other words, you need to know and be firm in the gospel. You need to be steadfast and immovable in the gospel and in the truth, in the hope that that gospel proclaims. Here's just a couple of examples of that. In Galatians 1, verse 23, don't turn to these. I just want you to hear how th- that's used. He says, they kept on hearing that he who once persecuted us now is preaching the faith which he once destroyed, tried to destroy. What is he saying? He's preaching the truth about Christ that he once tried to eliminate, speaking there of Paul before his conversion. It says in chapter 6, verse 10, that while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Those who are identified with the truth and the saving truth of Christ. Here he says, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith, the truth that you have embraced. Again, this is the theology of Christ and of the gospel. And it's what Peter has already established in his epistle. And he says, stand firm in it. Hold tightly to it. Stand firm in the body of truth you have believed. Okay? How do we stand firm? How do we stand firm? How do we stand firm in this body of truth? Well, let me suggest this. That we, in order to stand firm, have to know how we're being resisted or how we're being sought after. In order to stand firm against the intentions of the evil one, the schemes of the evil one, we have to understand what those schemes are so we know that that's the place of resistance. That's the place where we stand. That's the place where we need to be the most careful to not be influenced. How then does he seek to devour us, and what exactly are we to stand firm against? Well... You could tease this out in a lot other ways, but let me give you at least three categories. Three categories. The ways that he seeks to devour. Now, now, Peter is specifically dealing with here his intent to destroy through persecution. But inherent in this characterization of Satan are all of his ways, and they're also evident even in his epistle, of the ways that he seeks to destroy the faith of believers. Let me give you three areas. One is... Is through false teaching, two is through moral compromise or sin, and three is through fear. Through fear. Let's just consider these. Then, how are we to stand against him? One is to recognize that he seeks to devour and destroy the testimony of Christ through false teaching. This is a key area of attack by Satan. Right? It's right at the beginning. He's a liar. He's been a liar from the beginning. When he lies and he tells a lie, Jesus says he speaks from his own nature because that's who he is. At the very beginning of Scripture, in Genesis 3, he is lying. He is bringing false teaching. He is telling untruths about God. He is causing doubt in the mind of Eve. He's causing deception in the heart of Eve and in the mind of Eve. He seeks to devour through false teaching. In 2 Peter, his epistle there, he brings this up directly. He doesn't really deal with that issue in his first epistle, but but apparently other issues arose that caused him to have to deal with this extensively in his second epistle. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 2, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, their destruction is not asleep. What does that remind you of? Paul's instructions to the Ephesian elders, right? We've mentioned that a few times. Someone is going, they're going to rise up among you. False doctrine is going to rise up among you. Among your own numbers, you who are the protectors of the sheep are going to, in fact, from that number who should be the protectors are going to be the destroyers of the sheep. And here Peter is going to tell the same group later, be aware, false prophets are going to arise among you. They are tools of the evil one. They are going to introduce his heresies, his doctrines, his untruths, his lies, his false teaching. Why? To destroy you, to devour you. Because he's walking around like a roaring lion, seeking those whom he may devour it is through false teaching remember that satan executes his will through his servants who are his servants well in one sense you could say demons are but the unregenerate person he's the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience who are the ones who do his will it is the people who follow their father the devil And they are not only outside of the church, he's saying that he has people inside of the church. Be aware of false teaching. Be aware of false doctrine. And this is extremely important. Because this is the work of Satan that is sadly ignored by many individual Christians and in the church at large. Doctrine that is downplayed, a deep understanding of scripture, is frankly Boring to large sections of the church Give me anything, give me music, give me something But do not make me think deeply about Christ The gospel is primarily there to encourage me And to make me feel more fortitude in my walking in this life The gospel is there primarily to comfort me in all of my struggles The goal of the church is to make you feel encouraged how? Not by dealing with sin, certainly. Not by thinking deeply about God, but in superficial ways. And that is to ignore the warning that he says here. That he is, false prophets are going to rise among you. He wants to destroy you through false teaching. You have to be able to resist him by knowing the truth. If you don't know the truth, you're a fodder for his designs. And so he says... This right at the beginning, that you've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, the living and the enduring word of God. The living and the enduring word of God. It was the instrument and the source by the power of the spirit to bring forth life, to connect you to the life of Christ. And this is the word that he says you must long for and you must grow in. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Now really there it's interesting. We looked at this before. He doesn't use the word word there. That's that's supplied by intent of translators. He actually just says the pure milk. The implication there by context is the pure milk of the revelation of Christ. Where is the revelation of Christ in the Word of God? That very word that was proclaimed to you, that very word which is enduring, and that very word by which you were born again, that very word which contains the message of Christ is the word through which you are or in which you are to grow. And you're to grow in respect to salvation. And that's the only way that you can be ultimately protected from this intention of the devil is To know the truth. And this is the battle begins then in the mind. And again, Peter's already addressed this. In verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ from the dead. The battle with sanctification, the battle for holiness, the battle begins in the mind. It begins in the mind. What do you think about during the day? Where do you find your greatest temptations? Where do you see that you most often and commonly struggle? What do you see in your life that most deadens your affections for the truth? That's the area that you need to be alert, that I need to be alert, that we need to be sober. Because that's where he wants to attack. That's where he prowls around. If he gets a foothold in your mind, he's already got a foothold in your heart. And it is from there... That he will seek to continue to work his evil intents. You must guard your mind. How do you resist him? You guard your mind. You know the truth. You grow in the truth. You long for the truth. You understand the truth. You obey the truth. It's the only defense that we have against the schemes of the devil. Well, that's the first, that's the front line, if you will, against the schemes of the devil. What's the second way we are that he tries to destroy us and we must resist? One is we must know the truth. We must know the truth. And you must have your minds guarded by it. You must be sober in your thinking. And you must be knowledgeable of who God is and the salvation that we are to long for. Secondly is moral compromise. Basically sin. Moral compromise. He wants you to fall Morally. And again, Peter's already identified this as well. He said back in chapter 2, Beloved, I urge you in verse 11 as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. To abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. And again, I repeat this repeatedly. The only power that Satan has in your life to destroy you is the sin that remains in you. He can destroy your body. He can put you through great temptation, but he cannot affect your soul to any greater degree than you give him that foothold or that I do. You give him a foothold of pride, a foothold of covetousness, a foothold of unforgiveness, a foothold of sensuality and lust. Any kind of foothold that he could have and to build on is what resides in you that is yet unredeemed. That's why it is the utmost importance in our ability to resist him, that you pursue holiness. Again, be holy as I am holy. Paul said, we by the Spirit are proving our sonship. How? We're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And if we're not killing sin in our life, we are not aware of sin and we're not addressing sin, we're not confronting sin in our life, then you will not be able to resist the devil who is seeking to devour you. Even the sin within us is seeking to devour us. It always aims at the utmost. You must be dealing with sin. Again, this is actually attached to the false teaching. I already read it once. What are these false teachers going to uh, bring? What is their end? Well, many will follow after their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Operating out of greed, they will exploit you with false words. He goes on to say in verse 10 that they are those who despise authority, that they have corrupt desires. In verse 14, that they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, those not firm in the faith, those unstable, ignorant, unknowledgeable, or disobedient. And he says in verse 18, they are speaking out Arrogant words of vanity And they entice by fleshly desires I know you I harp on this is kind of my soapbox But the internet As much good as comes through it Is that tool It is an essential tool Anything that comes into your mind Any kind of sexual desire Any kind of any kind of desire That's a big one You have immediate access to In anonymity Nobody else knows Humanly only God You have a ubiquitous presence of that access in the phone and in the computer. And then this is where he wants to work. This is why we say you have to guard what is influencing your mind, what is influencing your affections, what kind of things are wielding the greatest impact on you. Is it marshmallow? I mentioned him a few weeks ago. That great artist who wears a marshmallow on his head. What is it? What is it? So here is the idea, though. How is he seeking to devour? He's seeking to devour through moral compromise. You must be sober. You must be alert. You must be diligent. All of us must be to be aware of the ways that he works. This, if you're a parent, that's 90% of your parenting. You feel like that? I know the ones I speak to, we do. 90% of your parenting is just how to have self-control with the ever-present reality of electronics, of the internet, of music. It's all at the fingertips. And those things influence us. Those things influence. They they influence the way that we think. They conform us to the thinking of the world rather than being an instrument to transform us into the likeness of Christ. They conform us to the thinking of the world. All of a sudden, sexual immorality doesn't seem so bad. All of a sudden, greed and covetousness and pride don't seem so serious. Listen to the way that one person said this. The mind and the emotions are the two areas where Satan most fiercely attacks believers. He creates a world system, a sinful environment, by by which he tempts us to think wrong thoughts and to feel wrong emotions. He wants to cloud our minds with false doctrine, false principles, and false information in order to mislead and confuse us. He also wants to confuse our emotions and thereby pervert our affections, morals, loyalties, goals, and commitments. He desires to snatch the word of God from our minds and replace it with his own perverse ideas. He seeks to undermine pure living and replace it with immorality, greed, envy, hate, and every other vice. He wants us to laugh at sin rather than to mourn over it and to rationalize it rather than confess it and bring it to the Lord for forgiveness. He secures us to become so used to sin, or he makes us so used to sin in us and around us that it no longer bothers our conscience. End quote. Have you seen that? Have you seen that in your own life? Have you seen things that would have bothered you a year ago that don't bother you now? Okay, have you seen things that would have bothered you five years ago? Is Are there areas of sin that, Don't bother you now? How influenced have we been? This is his intention. He is the God of this world. And if we're going to resist him, we have to know that. We're not closing our eyes and shooting randomly. We have to see the enemy and shoot directly. You have to kill the one who's attacking you. You don't just throw a hand grenade randomly and hope it hits somewhere close. You throw it towards the one who's attacking you. That's battle. You must win. You must kill your enemy. And in order to kill him, you have to know where he is. And you have to know what he's doing. And so here it is. He wants sin to come with every kind of seductiveness and sensuality and pleasure and power and the promise of being everything good to us. I just want to at least mention this. And so we have to be aware of that resistance. And we'll mention that in just a sec. But in Proverbs 5, he says this. Proverbs 5. Now, he's speaking here of sexual sin, and that, that is at the forefront of what we battle. That is at the forefront of our culture. Pornography, as you know, is hundreds of billions of dollars a year. It's one of the greatest uses, if not the greatest, I don't remember, use of the Internet. It's at least number two. If it's not, I think it's number one. It's there. We live in a pornographic culture. You can hardly escape it. But he says this. And so he's speaking here of sexual sin, but this could be used of all of sin, the idea of it. The lo- it's really the logic of sin. It's the way that sin works. You could call it an anatomy of sin, if you would, that this, this uh, woman represents. He says, For the lips of an adulteress, verse 3 of chapter 5 of Proverbs, the lips of an adulteress, they drip honey. Sweet. Smoother than oil, is her speech. Goes down so nicely. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death, her steps take hold of Sheol. That's how sin works. And so we are to resist him at the level of moral compromise. To resist him at the level of truth and resist him at the level of moral compromise. How? By pursuing holiness. By pursuing holiness. By responding to unrighteousness with righteousness. By not giving in to the temptation to compromise. He says not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Not giving in to the threats. Not giving in to that temptation to lash out in anger. Not giving in to that temptation to compromise the truth of the gospel. But there is one passage, and unfortunately we're going to have to go way quick on this, but I am going to mention it in Ephesians chapter 6. Because it relates so directly And it really is in many ways a It's not a parallel passage But it does pick up on some of the same themes Many of the same themes As Paul or as Peter You're familiar with this passage I'm, I'm again just going to read it And mention it quickly How are we to fight against this moral compromise Really any kind of compromise Even the compromise of the truth He says this Peter does or Paul does I'll get them straight In verse 10 of Ephesians 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, he's already mentioned that unbelievers walk in the darkness of their mind, the futility of their mind. They live with a kind of greediness, a sinful greediness. He tells them the things they do in the dark are reprehensible. They shouldn't even be mentioned among God's people. And then he comes in again and he addresses it in this way. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We've looked at that. It is he is methodical. He is intentional. He is purposeful. He has an extreme intelligence that has only garnered experience through all of the ages so that he is wise in his evil. Not wise in the ultimate. He knows how we work and as we think. And he says, put on the full armor of God. Stand against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, against the rulers, the powers, world forces of this darkness, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So what are we to do? Take up the full armor of God. What does that mean? It means this, that as you take up the full armor of God, you will be able to resist in the evil day. There is our word that you'll resist how in the full armor of God and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, you can squabble, or some do, what is the imagery that he's picturing up here? Is it of, is it of a Roman soldier, of it or is it of our Messiah war, uh, warrior king that he's quoting from in the Old Testament? All of those are taken from the prophet Isaiah in reference to our Messiah, in reference to this coming one, in reference to his coming kingdom. The imagery really picks up on both. It's not really an argument that needs to be won. The point is, rather, to understand what does he mean by it. What does he mean by these things? He says, you are, in verse 14, to stand firm, having girded your loins with the truth. We don't talk like that anymore, do we? We don't say, I girded myself this morning as I got ready for church. But they did, and the idea is this. The idea is that, we've already looked, you're you're taking up the loose ends, the belt of a Roman soldier, or the soldiers, instead of the the loose flowing things that could trip you up, were tightened up so that they could be prepared for battle. If you wrestle, I wrestled in high school, I wasn't very good, but I wrestled in high school, I used to know how many ceiling tiles, I think, were on every gym of where I lived. (laughs) But nonetheless, uh, I did that, Uh, and when you wrestle, if you've seen some of them, I'm not talking about WWF as talented as they are, I mean instead like what you see in college or in high schools with these tight uniforms, a little too tight, and they're out there. Why are they so tight? So that nothing can be grabbed. Why do you see professional football players uh, with their things pulled tight so nothing can be grabbed? The idea here is this, that you take up the loose ends with the belt of truth. And so if it's the belt of truth, it is your thinking, it is how you understand truth, it is not to be loose. You don't play fast and loose with the truth. You don't make doctrine optional. What kind of truth? Well, it could be doctrinal truth and content, or some take it as sincerity. But really, you don't have to make sharp distinctions. It is clearly involves primarily doctrine and content, truth, the content of Scripture. We don't sincerity is inherent in that. However, if it's a true embracing of the gospel. The mind and the heart must be saturated, stable, and prepared by the truth. Must be the breastplate of righteousness. Again, is he referring here to imputed righteousness, that righteousness that is given to us by God's decision through faith in Christ, the instrument of faith? Or is he talking about practical righteousness? And again, it doesn't have to be such a sharp distinction. Because practical righteousness for the believer is a result of imputed righteousness. It's a result of regeneration. It's a result of the indwelling spirit. But all of that is connected to a living and vibrant and true faith in Christ through which we have the righteousness of Christ. So how do you fight against it? One, live consistent with your testimony of faith. Live consistent. Practically out, live out practically the righteousness that you have received in being conformed. Or not you received in being conformed, but and then be conformed to Christ through whom that righteousness was granted to us. You put on this breastplate. Guard your heart. Guard your affections. Guard your mind. Guard in every way against the onslaught of the evil one. The gospel of pre, uh, peace Sometimes there's a description of boots here, but he actually doesn't mention boots. He just says, or any kind of thing, he just says, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And again, this could mean then confidence of the peace that we have with God that enables us to stand firm and strong, and that's certainly true. It could as well mean the idea of the proclaiming the gospel, of speaking forth the gospel. And Again, both are true both are true both are how we resist and stand against the devil there is the helmet of salvation and then there is the shield or the shield of faith the large shield he's talking about here to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one how does he want to attack us with flaming arrows well there's a variety of ways some we already mentioned through discouragement through fear through doubt through confusion There's a variety of ways he seeks to do that individually and the church as a whole. You take the shield of faith, a shield of faith that is trusting in the promises of God. Again, this is the idea of Peter. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in what you know to be true about the gospel. The helmet of salvation, which Paul describes elsewhere as the hope of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit. And there is the offensive weapon the sword of the spirit, and that connects with the idea of truth, connects with the idea of faith, connects with the idea of the gospel and righteousness, but it is its own individual weapon of the Christian of how to resist and actually not only resist but to charge and to fight back against the purposes of Satan, which is to take the sword of the spirit. It is to fight him. It is to resist him. It is to fight back, essentially. Don't stand there and be passive. Don't stand there and be idle. Don't stand there and simply take the beating, which will lead to your destruction, but stand firm. Be a good soldier of Christ. Fight against him. Fight back. How? Well, with the truth of Scripture, with a holy life. With confidence in the gospel. And then how else? And this I'm going to mention and we'll finish it next week. We'll finish this verse and the next verse next week. But he says this. How else? Well, I already mentioned it. Through the fear of persecution. And that's how we are to resist him. And how? Well, again, by laying hold of what God has promised us in Christ where he's going to point us in verse 10 after you've suffered for a little while the god of all grace who called you into his eternal glory and christ will himself perfect confirm and strengthen you so how do you stand firm and how do you resist him you resist him first by the truth believing in the sufficiency and the authority of scripture you resist him by obedience to that truth with a holy life you resist him by being aware of the ways that he wants to destroy you through false teaching, through moral compromise, and through fear. But we need to have the attitude of that 15-year-old girl who was put in a prison all by herself because she wouldn't conform. We need to write as you could on the tablets of our heart if we could kind of push that through and say, resist, resisteds, Resist the work. I will not compromise, I will not fail to stand against the intentions of the evil one. We must have that resolve. We must ask God to give us that resolve. We must be quick to confess when we fail in that resolve and fail at times you will. And so do I. But then that reminds us again of our hope, doesn't it? It Reminds us again, even in our failure of our hope in Christ, that we stand in him who has defeated us. Our enemy he causes pain he causes frustration he can cause chaos he can cause at times Discouragement because of our own failures, but at the end of the day we stand in him complete As the song says We stand in him secure We stand in him in possession of a kingdom That will not fade away that is imperishable undefiled a kingdom that is reserved for us in heaven a kingdom that is protected or uh, procured for us by Christ and by which he protects us through faith. And that kingdom cannot be taken away. And that's what helps you to pick yourself up on the battlefield when you get knocked down and to stand strong again in resistance against him and to continue on in the fight and in the battle. But as we come to the Lord's table here, we're essentially celebrating that victory. We're essentially reminding, being reminded that we're not yet in full possession of all that was promised to us, but we stand in him who has completed it for us. We're not yet freed from our enemy. We still are in a battleground, but yet we will have assured victory. We stand not alone, but even as we take these elements, we take them as the body of Christ and say we stand together in union with Christ. We stand together to aid one another in this battle. We stand together to encourage one another in this battle, in the truth. And when, again, we fall and we bear one another's burdens. So we don't stand alone, but we stand under our chief shepherd, and we stand under the Lord who has gone before us. And that of the glorious truths that we remember in this table and in this body As we come and as you're preparing your heart, think then, just in relation to what Peter told us in this passage, anyway. Where do you see the attacks of Satan in your own life? Where do you need to resist? Where do you see moral compromise? Where do you see laziness in guarding your mind in the truth? Where do you see the temptation to give in to that which is ungodly? In attitude in any kind of way. Where do you see that you are fearful to speak the truth of Christ in a context? Ask God to give you the strength. Ask him to enable you to stand firm and to resist, to defeat and to stand in the victory and in the reality of all that God has supplied for us in Christ and by the Spirit and by his word. So ask the Lord to help you. And where you do see that he has helped you do that, then thank him. Thank him, thank him for his incredible patience with us. Thank You that he always hears that prayer of confession, the prayer of worship, the prayer of our need. He hears those prayers, and he is with us. Let's pray, and then men will come forward and bring the elements. Father, thank you for the great truth of the gospel. And our enemy is strong, but you've told us to resist. You have told us to stand firm. You've told us to be s- sober-minded. You've given us instructions. You've not left us in the dark. But even more than that, you've given us the word of our Savior, of Christ, you who've come, who's defeated the works of the devil, as John said, who has risen from the dead and defeated our greatest enemy ultimately, who has ascended to the right hand of the Father, who has received the promise, as Peter declared in the first sermon, and sent forth that which they saw and heard, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that great new covenant reality of the indwelling spirit whom you have given to us and whose power we fight. And so help us to be faithful in that fight, to lean not on our strength, but on the strength that you supply, to stand firm that we might bring glory to you in this world and help us to encourage us in this, even now as we remember you, you who came, you who died, you who rose, you who's at now at the right hand of the Father, you who has gathered us as your people, as your body, you who stand with us, and you who enable us to stand, more importantly, with you, firm in the faith, and, w- and remind us that our victory is coming, that our salvation is coming. Pray in your name.